So a few years back, uh, my son and I were in San Francisco, and Julie was at a conference. And, uh, and so we went to the San Francisco Museum of Art. And we were looking around and, and at the different paintings. And, and one of these paintings struck us because it was just a big blank canvas uh, looking something like that. And it was appropriately titled, Untitled. And, and for the rest of the day, uh, that became the brunt of all kinds of jokes. We're like, what is that doing in a museum? And, and, then, we would, and then we would say things like, you know, we'd say, oh, it just touched me so deeply. And, and, then, and then Simeon would, would do these sort of fake cries, yes, yes, Untitled was so moving. And it was very funny to, to just see how much creativity this, this blank canvas instilled in us. And yet as I thought about it, I was like going, well, maybe that's right. Maybe that's exactly what the point of that was. It was to stimulate our, our own imaginations. You know, art comes in, in many, many different forms. But all art comes from some kind of, of inspiration, a vision of something that, that an artist sees can be created from just, from just ordinary stuff. You know, since prehistoric times, sculptors had, have, have looked at uh, just a piece of stone and, and, and been able to just imagine what could be just what was, what was literally inside of it and just needed to come out in order for, for life to come. And some artists create things like Michelangelo's David or Da Vinci's The Last Supper that, that so touch people that even long after these artists are dead, they continue to inspire people, just uh, even, even up to today. Today we're going to actually be looking at a piece of art. We're going to look at a, at a work of art. Um, we're going to work at a work of art that, that Paul describes in his letter to... Uh, to the Ephesians in chapter 2. Um, now, unlike Paul's other letters, let's just talk a little bit about Ephesians. Um, Ephesians doesn't actually address a problem, so there isn't some sort of problem. But really what it is, it's a, it's a book that's meant to encourage a church that has sacrificed much to become disciples of Jesus. And so this is meant to be a letter of encouragement, to, to build them up. Now, you might recall from... Acts chapter 19, that those who formerly practiced magic arts in Ephesus actually burned all their valuable books in the sight of, of, of everyone in the city. And so they made a very clear and public break uh, with their former way of life. And, and in the process, it cost them very deeply because everyone knew now, look what they've done, and they've given this, this life up. Now to this church, Paul proclaims in the 10th verse, we are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. And the Greek word translated here is poema, which may be best translated in the Jerusalem Bible as a work of art. We are God's work of art. Isn't that beautiful? We are God's work of art. Now we're going to be delving into the first ten verses of, of chapter two, so I just want to invite you to open your Bibles up. Um, and we'll, we'll follow closely this passage that, uh, that Paul has, has written here in his letter. So it's chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And if you start looking at the passage, it's, it's actually divided into, into three sections. A, a really long first section and then two smaller sections. So verse 1 through 7 is a description of the life of the Ephesians prior to uh, 
to, to God creating them into this work of art. Verses 8 and 9 are the means by which God created this work of art. And then in verse 10 is the purpose for this work of art. So we'll look at 1 through 7 first. Now, not every human being is a work of art in the sense that Paul means it. So it's not somebody on the street and we say, oh, you're a work of art, you're a work of art, you're all a work of art. That's not what Paul means. Paul is describing those who've been creatively regenerated through the salvation in Christ as God's work of art. So it's, it's the work of art is what God has done to regenerate us and to make us a new people. And so he wants to remind the church of what they were like before God's creative work in them. Now, in the original Greek, verses 1 through 7 is actually one big, long sentence. And it's not until chapter, verse 4, actually, that we find out what the subject of this, of this, uh, uh, of this long sentence is. And it's God. And it's not until verse 5 or 6 that we actually get the verbs. So... Uh, it's a very long way of, of getting it. And that's because Paul is setting up a bit of drama here. He's intentionally setting up some drama through his sentences. Before he announces what God has actually done in their lives, he wants them to remember the way that they used to dwell. In order to understand the significance of what God has done, remember this. Remember what you were. And so he says, before Christ... You were dead. You were dead. Not physically dead, but they were spiritually dead. And so in the same way that a, um, that a dead person can't talk, right? Somebody who's dead can't talk. Well, somebody who's spiritually dead can't communicate with God. They're literally separated from God. They're separated from God. There's a barrier that prevents them. They can't communicate to God because they're spiritually dead, because they're, they're separated from God. They are paralyzed in their transgressions and sins. So they behave contrary to the holiness and righteousness of God. So what do people look like when they're dead in their sins and transgressions? Well, Paul says two things. First, he says that they follow the ways of the world and the prince of the air. And clearly what this is a reference to is Satan. It's it's Satan. He's basically saying that they follow the one who, who controls this world, who is Satan himself, and his kingdom is this world where his values, priority, and agenda reign. And then Paul says that they lived according to the passions of the flesh, according to the desires of the body, of their bodies and minds. Now, now some of us process the world, some of us make decisions based on our feelings, right? We feel things we make decisions with. And other of us make decisions based, well, upon our, upon our reason and, and our ideas, and we make decisions that way. But among the spiritually dead, both are flawed. Both become flawed. When we live according to our feelings, we assume that, that everything we feel like doing is right. And we want others to acknowledge that, that what we feel is valuable. We want people to say, yes, this is, this is right. This is good. But truthfully, that is the way animals live, isn't it? 
I mean, animals do what they feel like doing. That's the way they live. But human beings were created in the image of God. Animals weren't created in the image of God. We're distinct and different from them. They were intended to be greater than the desires of their flesh. Now, others naturally make decisions based on our cognitive abilities, reasoning. But if the reasoning is based on a false premise, say a reasoning like, well, there is no God, then it's easy to be flawed in the way that we think. We make mistakes in our thinking, and we don't even realize it. Let me give you an extreme example, uh, but it nevertheless shows kind of the way the natural mind works when you're spiritually dead. So I was working in a, as a chaplain in a hospital in, in Albany, New York once. And within this hospital, it was a very large hospital, there was actually a, a prison unit. So this would be like inmates that would come in who become ill, and so they, were, they were, had a whole a section of the hospital. And one day, one of these inmates um, wanted to see a chaplain and wanted to get a Bible. And I was called in to be the, the chaplain, and so I came, and, and, uh, and, and he said, I want to talk. And so I sat down, and, and I talked to this, to this guy. And, uh, and then he began talking to me. He said, you know, um, I, was, I was arrested for statutory rape. But I wasn't guilty. I wasn't guilty. And then he proceeded to tell me that it was the eight-year-old boy's fault, that he's the one that came on to him. And that's the way distorted thinking works. You know, when you're fallen, you think your thoughts are right, but it's, you have that level of distortion. Adults don't act that way. Adults are supposed to be in control of their behaviors. But he had no conception of that because... He was spiritually dead. He was spiritually broken, and so he couldn't grasp that. And that's the condition of all people before God takes action in our, their lives. Now, humanity could have remained in this state, in the state of brokenness. But God broke into human history in order to rescue humanity, in order to rescue humanity from the perversion of their feelings and the perversion of their thoughts. He came into history, or as Paul says in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. This is God's creative work of art. This is God's gift. This is God's masterpiece. As Christ has been raised from the dead, his people now are raised with him. They're raised with him into a new life. Apart from Christ, there is no new life. No work of art. And that's why Christ alone is the hope of the world. Now we move on to verses 8 and 9. Paul now wants to go on to, de to describe the means by which God made it possible for us to become a work of art. Paul says that salvation is the result of God's grace. In the original Greek, grace means unmerited favor, goodness, or kindness. So the, the key word there is unmerited. It's something that's, that's not deserved. That's what grace is. In the coming of Jesus, God has displayed grace. He's displayed grace to humanity. 
They didn't deserve God's favor. They deserved destruction. But through God's grace, their lives have been recreated. If there's one trait that perhaps characterizes Jesus, and, and think about Jesus and his ministry, I think one of those traits is no doubt his incredible grace. Jesus showed favor to people that didn't deserve to be shown favor. We could talk about Judas. We could talk about Matthew, who was a, you know, a tax collector, and yet he made him one of his disciples. We could talk about the chief tax collector, the one who cheated thousands of Israelites, Zacchaeus, and yet Jesus showed him favor. We could talk about the prostitute who had committed sin after sin, and yet he chose her to be the one to anoint him before his death. Because God loves to redeem lives. He loves to redeem lives. And he shows grace to people who don't deserve to be shown grace. Why? Why would God be so gracious to broken, rebellion, rebellious people? Because by nature, God is not vengeful or self-centered. But God is generous. You know, God is, is a generous God. And he wants to share himself and all of his goodness with people. He wants to share that goodness with us, with all of us. Whereas the world hoards, squanders, and withholds, and lavishly expends on self, God offered what was most precious to him, what cost him the most, his own son, in order that he might redeem humanity. God's grace is a product of this, uh, his amazing capacity to show mercy. Or as Paul says in verse 4, God is rich in mercy. And these things really go together. You know, God is a God of grace who shows unmerited favor, and he does so because he's a God of mercy. He shows mercy. He has a heart, to, to, a heart for compassion. To have mercy means to have pity or to be sorry on another in affliction. You see the affliction, you see the hardship, and you can't run away. You, you, you have to go out, and you, have to, and you have to help. It means to respond in very concrete ways to the needs of the world. That's the way God acted toward humanity. We were dead, we were lost in our sin, but he showed mercy and devised a way for us to be saved. In his life, Jesus constantly showed mercy. And he intended that his followers would be people who would show mercy in return. That we would learn from him, that we, that we would see in him, and that we would do so in return. That's what he intended. And, and the way that he showed his people is through parables. You know, you remember some of the parables that he, uh, that he said? He had all kinds of parables. One of those parables, of course, the most famous, is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that parable, he said, what is mercy? Well, when they see an injured person on the road, that you would take that person, that you would, that you would meet that person's need. It meant bandaging his wounds. It meant taking him to an end, and it meant covering his expenses while the injured person recovered. That's what mercy was. The point is, 
is that God has been merciful to his people. And we are to be people who show mercy as well. The hardship and suffering of others around us provides all kinds of opportunities. We walk outside of these doors and there is suffering. And we're meant to be people who show mercy. So when you see a person's need, don't hold back. There's all kinds of need. Mercifully give all that is required to meet the need just as Jesus has done. God saves us by grace so that we can have mercy on others around us. Now in the third part of the passage, verse 10, Paul defines the purpose of this work of art. Okay, he's, he's, he said, okay, this is, this, is, this is where you were. This is what the, this new piece of, uh, this new work of art is. This is the means by which you did it. Now he's going to say, okay, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of this art? And here we discover the answer to the question that has baffled human beings from the very beginning. Why am I here? What's the meaning of existence? And now we know. Humans were created for God's pleasure. We were created for God's pleasure. Well, here's how Paul puts it in verse 10. We are God's workmanship. We are his work of art. You know, at the time of Paul, one of the, the seven wonders of the world was the temple of, of Artemis in uh, in, in, in Ephesus, it was this great big temple that was built, one of the great wonders of the world. And people of the known world at the time would come to Ephesus in, in order to come and uh, to this to this temple. And inside the temple was Lady Ephesus, Artemis, adorned with breast-like bulges on her torso, and was worshipped as the goddess of fertility. I think I've got a picture of it, Jeff. There, that's what Artemis looked like. <laughs> she was a goddess of fertility to the ultimate extreme. And in, and in, uh, in Acts chapter 19, uh, when, when Paul preached, do you remember when he preached the gospel in, in Ephesus? Do you remember how the, uh, some of the silversmiths, metalsmiths were getting really upset uh, because they were losing their livelihood? They were losing their livelihood because of Paul's message. And so they began to riot and, and they'd be right in such a way, and they, they gathered together, and they shouted, Great is Artemis of Ephesus. They thought their salvation rested in the works of art that they carved. But in reality, their salvation exists in the work of art God creates in us in Christ. The difference between an artist and God is that when God envisions his work of art, is that the product is alive. The product is alive, it's given life. And therefore his work of art has purpose, a purpose that he's preordained for every one of his works of art. Just as a shipbuilder has a complete plan for a vessel even before the first timbers are laid, so God has a plan for the lives of every one of his pieces of art. The purpose of God's work of art, Paul says, is to do good works. 
good works God preordained for them to do. Now, ironic, isn't it? So in a passage that talks so much about grace, now we're talking about works. We are not saved by our works. And Paul is clearly making that in this very, making it very clear in this passage that, that, that salvation is clearly a gift of God, something that we can't add to. But once saved, once recreated into this work of art, we, became, we become capable of doing good works that we were never able to do before. J.R. Tolkien, the creator of The Lord of the Rings, once said that the characters that he created, those characters seemed like they were always alive. It wasn't something of his own invention. He was simply writing about, bringing to life through his words what was already there. It, it's like it was inspired. It was already there, and, it, it, and the God had inspired it, and he just sort of put it to pen, and it came to life. And similarly, God has things for us to do that are not our own invention, but through our lives, through the, the, the work of our lives, we bring what God has divinely inspired into reality. Jesus prepared his disciples for this very thing when he said, let your light to shine before others so that they see your good works and give glory to God. You know, as I reflect on my own life, if I had created and, and decided the course of my life, if I had been the architect, it never would have looked like this. But, but, but God has led me into circumstances and, 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 and to all kinds of things that I never dreamed of. And this I know of. This is what he had preordained. This is what he preordained. And I look forward to seeing what else God has for me and my life. The most compelling way of knowing that you are truly God's work of art is that you no longer see this world in the same way. You no longer grasp it in the way that you used to grasp it. You see that the world doesn't consist merely of your passions and desires, but, they, but everything is a product of God's handiwork. You understand that there is a, a powerful enemy out there who controls most of the people out there. You grasp that your life is not your own, but it belongs to God. Your body is not your own. Your things are not your own. Your time is not your own. They exist for God and his purposes. So I want to urge you today, in the same way that Paul urges his readers in this passage, to walk in the works that God has given you to do. As you engage in your daily toil, the daily toil, being mindful of this, that you are works of art. Every one of you, you are works of art. You exist to reveal God's truth and love through your words and deeds. Works of art are not meant to be kept in private homes, but they're meant to be displayed for the world to see. Let's pray.